0: Welcome back to Just FYI Pod Ideas. Uh, it is another beautiful Wednesday morning here in Alabama. I'm giving a
1: friend, uh, my friend Clark Ellison, a call this morning. How's it going, Clark? It's going well. It yeah. started out at uh, late 30s uh, temperature-wise in the morning, and it's going to get up to I think 65 or 70. So delightfully impossible to plan for. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's great. It's, it's it's great here. And so you're, in, you were saying earlier today. I mean, you, we we we
0: chatted a little while ago, and you were talking about basketball season is in full swing what about your what about
1: your baylor bears how are they looking right now uh they're doing okay uh they're still ranked in the top 25 awesome um but honestly i kind of wait until the tournament begins (laughs) and and then i start cluing in so i keep up with the score uh the scores but uh, i'm not quite as clued in as i once was so i mean it seems
0: that this is the state of basketball in general right now and i i don't i don't want to go on a rant about basketball or how it's changed and I think you had a pretty savvy point recently when you said you think some of the changes in basketball are analogous to, like, the launch angle swing in baseball where it just sort of made the game differently. And I I was watching a college game the other night. It might have been Villanova, actually. And I think there were, like, nine three-pointers in a row taken in the game. (laughs) It was just like – there was just nothing. It's basically just wait to get a three-point look. And I don't know. There is something about – there's something inherently non-dramatic – about that in my opinion even though i like shooting three-pointers myself but you know what i'm saying
1: yeah sure and i think it's all basketball um and i would also say too if i'm being entirely fair it's not just the style of play in college basketball it's also my general malaise with college sports more more broadly because uh (laughs) I, i don't really understand what makes college sports collegiate anymore uh when you defy location and uh, you make universities into um, you know semi-pro teams. I don't know. It's it's. I can't point to any one thing and be like, "Yep, that's why the MLAs is here." But they're certainly a malaise I, I my my viewership is going to the thirty thousand foot uh, view rather than the, the what used to be like a five thousand foot view. Uh, pre mind. Well, but I think the, the issue with the tournament and,
0: and wow, we could really get down the rabbit hole faster. You're <laughs> you're totally hitting all the right buttons. But I mean, the issue with the tournament, I think, is. Uh, you know, is that it is, it's a focal point precisely because of how much money people are wagering, Mm -hmm. uh, which raises another side of the kind of business element in college sports. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think what you're alluding to as well is the, the sort of NIL revolution and the fact that you know, players are are getting paid for their likeness, and I want to say was it Tennessee football recently that it was offering eight million a year? I think to a quarterback <laughs> prospect. Um,
1: yeah. and
0: you see guys who are who are foregoing pro eligibility to stay in college precisely because they're getting paid more in college That's than right. they would be in the pros. So it is a bit of a topsy turvy situation, and uh, you know, as an Alabama football fan, it's obviously painful with a. Uh, with Nick Saban's retirement and the the, mm. the the reality that you know you no longer have the the greatest coach of all time in there, and we're going to have to start paying for kids, I guess. And I don't I don't know if there's enough money <laughs> in the state. To we're we're going to have to start paying <laughs>
1: for kids. What?
0: <laughs> I mean, that's how it wow. works, isn't it? I mean, I think I, I think that's the. I mean, there's there's this kid down at Mobile. He's a he's a wide receiver. He's really really good. Um, and I want to say Alabama just ended up. What four million I think for him. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and of course that's much to the chagrin of my Auburn friends. who, you know, we're, we're quite certain if any of them listen to this, they will get mad at me. Maybe, but they were quite certain this kid was going to go to Auburn because they didn't think Alabama would pay that much. So, but again, what is that? What do you what do you do with that? What does that mean for college sports, et well, my cetera, big, et cetera? Yeah,
1: my, my big question is is uh, you know it's or rather my comment is is more that you know I'm critic I'm critical of it now but right around the corner universities are going to start doing the same thing with professors and you know what I'm going to be a free agent and I'm going to go to the highest bidder and it's going <laughs> to be <right>. fantastic <laughs> uh, and people are going to pay out the wazoo uh, to hear me get up in front of students and talk all day it's going to be fantastic <laughs> Right. Well, it's it's about like getting
0: compensated for this podcast. <laughs> so, uh uh right. okay. All right. So look, but never you know what? We're not doing it for the money, Clark. We're 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 doing it it's the love of the game, to, man. To, yeah, that's
1: right. Love of the game. Art
0: for art's sake, lo- you know, mm-hmm. sports for sports sake, uh, and so on and so forth. Okay. So what are we up to today? Right, we're we're continuing our list of our our favorite theological books of all time, our 10 favorite theological books. Um, as we talked about a couple of episodes ago, I mean, this list is somewhat funky in that, you know, we're, we're not necessarily saying these are the greatest works of theology of all time. We're not even saying that these are the, the works that we study the most or have examined the most in our academic lives. We're just saying that these are books that we've enjoyed reading, that we've benefited from, that have been <laughs> proven particularly thought-provoking and so on. Uh, and today we're now at number nine. Last week, I did uh, Death and Immortality by Joseph Pieper. You did The Doors of the Sea by David Bentley Hart. And now we're back with number nine. So you're up first. Why don't you tell our audience what you're going to talk about?
1: Yeah, uh, I'm going to talk about Helmut Tilaka's A Little Exercise for Young Theologians, which isn't even a, I mean, it is a book. It's freestanding. Uh, but in terms of length, it's, it's much more like an essay uh, with a series of sections um, all appended together. So it's not... Uh, it is certainly not um, a monstrous tome uh, of academic theology, uh, but it's something that I encountered uh, rather early in my academic career. It was it, it was required reading upon entry to Truett Seminary. And, ah, yeah, mm. I, I remembered it uh, because it was, I, I remember at the time thinking, oh, this, <laughs> sometimes it's, it's kind of, I'm sure it's like watching people play sports who are really, really talented um, where you see something and you're like, oh, wait, this person's going to be significant. They're going to be good at something. And I had a similar mm-hmm. experience with this book where I was like, okay, this is going to matter uh, to me, if not now, then someday. And, and the irony is, of course, it didn't matter to me at the moment. Um, I think I fell afoul of almost all the things he says uh, that young theologians typically fall afoul of. Uh, but, you know, I read it again and again, and and um, and every time come back to the same thing, which is this is, uh, there's wisdom here. So that's that's yeah. what I'll be talking about.
0: Okay, good deal. And, uh, and I don't know that work myself. So, I, you know, I was not required to read that upon my entry at seminary. So, <laughs> uh, which may say something about my seminary. Uh, but in any case, uh, I'm going to be talking about Jacques Aloul's, uh Anarchy and Christianity. So I'm diving headfirst into political waters. And uh, that should be mm-hmm. interesting as well. So, uh, all right, what we're going to do then, we're going to take a quick break, you know, g- grab a Coke or a cup of coffee or whatever you're drinking. And then we'll circle back here in a few minutes and get started on Uh, Helmut Tilica. All right. See you in a minute. Yep. Welcome back. All right. So, Clark, you've chosen a book by Helmut Tilica, a theologian that I I think I told you this sort of casually. I mean, I I had a professor back in the day who referred to Tilica's work and seem to admire him greatly, but I don't want to, I don't think he was assigned of any of my coursework and I don't know too much about him. So to start off with, I'm curious to hear sort of like, you know, who is this guy, you know, and, and why is he significant? Why should people be interested in his work?
1: So it's, I, I think um, maybe at the outset, I, I would say that, you know, theologians are no different than any other um, I hate to say celebrity because that has so many connotations, but maybe again, to use another athletic analogy, like tiers of sports stars, Mm -hmm. uh, for every LeBron James, uh, you have, uh, people who are seventh and eighth and ninth, uh, men on NBA teams who don't get headlines and yet are exceptional, exceptional basketball players. And so I, I think there's something that actually matters, uh, when we say that, uh, Tilica was not required reading for you Um, and outside of this he wasn't required reading for me Um, he actually was in in many respects a kind of uh, educational or rather academic polymath insofar as he was an administrator uh, he was a professor of theology um, and he also was a pastor at various points um, in his career so i think at one point in time he was the rector at the university of hamburg in the middle of the 20th century uh, at the same time, was teaching, um, you know, seminars in in theology, and also pastoring a church in Hamburg. So, um, and again, I, I think he he wore all of these hats at different times. So, I think he's one of these people who posterity doesn't remember because he's not on the uh, Mount Rushmore of mid century uh, Christian theologians. Um, especially a- probably not. Yeah, he's he's like a glue guy.
0: Is what you're saying? He's like the yes, Shane. He's yes. the Shane Battier of, of uh, theologians. So that's a little you, bit of a, be, of a dated. Be, reference, be careful! Yeah.
1: Yeah, I was say you're dating yourself right there. Uh, <laughs> but yes, I mean I totally get it, and that's fair. Uh, he he's the glue guy on a championship contender. He is not the he's not the lead guard. Um, so, so I think it's not insignificant to say that, that, that he is not a world shaking theologian, but I think there's also something else we should say that he, this, in some sense, the fact that he's remembered even as much as he is given the various roles that he held speaks to a kind of excellence. That's not strictly speaking academic, mm-hmm. um, that there's a kind of wisdom that he cultivated, uh, that is really valuable. And so, um, So, yeah. So I think he's I think this this bears out a kind of significance that's going to be pretty considerably different than a lot of the people that we're going to be discussing, um, many of whom are on the so-called Mount Rushmore of either theology or philosophy or culture or something like this.
0: And and he was you said Hamburg. So he was he was from Germany. He spent most of his life in Germany. Yeah. Yes yes okay. all of his, as far as i'm as far as i could find all of his life in germany actually. so he wasn't one of the like a like a political figure that kind of eventually immigrated to the us i mean he sort of no. stayed in germany and worked in germany um, okay all right interesting yeah. and uh, i mean in terms of like his overarching career i mean th- this small text I, su- I suppose isn't the pinnacle but like how would you kind of place his work you know
1: how would you place this book in his larger
0: corpus i guess you might say
1: well yeah I, this is certainly not his largest work um, or I say largest, I should say most significant work. Right. Um, he wrote a book on nihilism, for example, I think that was very, very well received. Uh, and I should point out that in, in this discussion, in the middle of the 20th century and towards the, uh, I would say, I mean, again, I, I'd be curious what you think about this, Chris. But uh, I'm thinking about the secularization thesis and the death of God theology. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's petering out by the time we get to the late 70s. But it is all the rage in the late 50s and 60s. Wait, it's um, petering
0: out. I thought it was still so cool. Like, what are you talking? <laughs>
1: about? I mean, well, no, yeah. I
0: mean, I do, but I, I do, th- I have sensed like different points of tension on that thing. I know, I know what you mean. Would you say it was petering out? I mean, it seemed to have a kind of. Well, then maybe we would say the moment. high point.
1: The, yeah the right. high point the high point of it's clearly i think the 60s and then you know it's building in the 50s I, I think post-war theology you know a mm-hmm. lot of a lot of different veins has it i mean i think this is a reason why people pick on bomb letters and papers as kind right. of it having some um some um, affinity for or rather yeah overlap with death of god thinking or at least as, in, as it's portrayed so but i but i don't think i mean don't know did you did in oxford was anybody talking about death of god theology i i certainly well i mean i think yeah i I guess i would argue
0: a little bit to the contrary i I this i don't want to go entirely down a rabbit hole well i'm thinking about so So pattison had a certain interest right george pattison my my doctoral supervisor had kind of an interest in death of god theology of altites and robinson this is a book by the way that came out uh um in the 1960s i forgot the exact year maybe 64 or something like that but it was called Uh, Radical theology and the death of God, and it had um, raised certain challenges to Christian theology. It was actually featured in Time magazine, um, and there was a a kind of a cultural uh, wake from this um, event, right? there there was songs by Johnny Cash and Loretta Lynn about, you know, these sort of you know country icons about, you know, God is not dead, uh, you know, and so in that sense, I think you're right, Clark. I mean, the, the sort of cultural moment that followed the death of God theology of the 60s was definitely uh, past, right? And then by the by the 2000s, people weren't talking about this in the same way, maybe because it had become more of a presupposition. But I know people like Jack Caputo and George Pattison and others have at least argued, Gianni Vadimo is an Italian philosopher, they've at least argued that The death of god now means something like the the weakness of theology that theology can no longer pontificate and pronounce it can only you know as it were operate with metaphysical humility um so i i think this is a larger movement but i think it's also a rabbit hole so Going back to Telegin, well, well and, yeah. and I would also,
1: well, I would also yeah. point out, and then I will take it back to Telegin, but yeah. I would also point out though the secularization thesis is is decidedly false at this point. That is, there's not, even if the death of God, um, if the if the echoes of this are still, you know, bouncing around, mm-hmm. um, I think the the allure of. Um, you know, the kind of death of God theology that we're entering like this new age in which there's there's kind of no space for classical speech on God. And again, it didn't begin here. It begins even much earlier than this. But this is, again, as you said, the cultural moment. And of course, since this time, people have uh, around the world have actually not become nearly as secular as it was predicted. And it wasn't mm. the harbinger of this kind of new age in the same way. So the reason that that's important is that um, I think Tilica is at the very very beginning of this i don't he's not in and i mean by this that he is um considering nihilism as as one of his later works because that's that's what's coming down the pike in in the Mm mid-century and um and i think that that would be a sign of of, again his his significance and situatedness within a theological context in germany that is reckoning with this post-war reality and a culture that um that is much more skeptical and much more um uh, distant from a kind of um, theological uh, would be um, not certainty a theological assumption maybe than than past generations certainly pre-war generations sure so, and so it's i i know i
0: know this isn't the book that you prepared for but just in a nutshell what was his kind of response to, to nihilism because i don't know it. i mean i i've not read his work i mean was it more or less like there's there's aspects of christianity that that let's say say post nietzschean post heideggerian thinking doesn't take into account or was it was it more of a i don't know a kind of bardian sort of no to, to this sort of nihilistic culture and a kind of call for return to the bible like well do, like, yes broadly speaking yes. yeah
1: it's it's the bar i th- I, it, I interpret it to be more the bardian option okay um, yeah. and so a kind of um, not only that, but a a return to the kind of and he says this actually in a little exercise um, that theology undertaken is either sacred theology or diabolical theology depending on whether or not it's undertaken in prayer and mm-hmm. so this kind of um, a kind of very practical theology as being the theology that that um, theologians should should actually practice I think speaks to this it is not a um, it's not nihilism in any way shape or form as a as an assumption or a necessity, but rather something that um, you know, just like all things academic theology in and of itself can succumb to just as anything cultural or um, contextual could. Uh, so and so- and
0: I, I like that because I think that that leads into kind of the next question, which is you know, you had mentioned at the outset, you know, that you read this as a kind of entry point into seminary. so, is that like when you first read this text? Was this why you were picking it up? Is this why? Uh, um, come on, what's the Baylor seminar? True this yeah, why True it. Yeah. Is this why Truett it recommended that you guys read it? No, I think it's much more
1: practical than that. And and this okay. is and, and this is going to take us directly into the 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 kind of nature of the text itself. Again, it's yeah. only forty pages, and he says he directly compares it to Anselm's uh, Pro- Prosologian. um, and the idea of. This uh, reflection on God as a as a practice situated in prayer and in the work of the community. And so what's interesting is, is that he details from the very outset, the first chapter uh, deals with why study theology and also has a little case study, an imaginary case study of someone who goes off to seminary. And what what (laughs) I can imagine
0: writing one of those.
1: (laughs) Oh, oh, I'm in
0: existential despair. I don't. (laughs) Anyway, I'm I'm sure he had much more refined
1: uh, examples, though. No, it's actually fantastic. In chapter three. And again, these chapters are like a page long. So it's on page six. And yet it's chapter three. Um, He literally says, um, describing the student when he comes home after his first semester in the eyes of his former companions, that is people in his in his youth group or church, he has suddenly Mm. and horribly changed. (laughs) And then he goes on (laughs) and details what this is, what this change is. And it's a change of, to some extent, um, going from a an enthusiasm for the text as a received text and how uh, being transformed by the scripture by being transformed by the practice of the church to something where you're standing over against it. Uh, And maybe Mm. more appropriately, you're standing above it. And so, so everything that is not approached um, in the way that the seminarian approaches it is viewed as naive or literalistic or whatever else the, the criticism might be. And that what, what emerges is this enormous chasm between the people who are embodying the the life of faith and who have shepherded this person. And then the actual person themselves who in the course of study is, has been uh, transformed into almost someone hostile. Um, And he goes into great detail, uh, which I actually really appreciate because I think his picture is very accurate. And then he, he poses the question, why would the church, ever support academic theology given that kind of change, which I think is all too, all too common. So, well, and, and prescient as well, because I mean, I, you,
0: you do see increasingly this kind of tension between, and I know I've seen it in, in, in my university where you have kids who are formed in sort of, I, let's say, I don't want to use the word conservative because it's laden with lots of connotations, but let's say in kind of traditional minded Catholic, uh, schools and, and and youth groups, and so on, and then they come to Villanova and there's actually a little bit of reluctance to take classes in theology for
1: precisely the reasons that it seems like Telika is indicating here. yeah, that's right. and And I would say, and this is, you know, I, I'm, there aren't many opportunities when we're going to be talking about the various books we're discussing to to really veer into. The, the intimately personal. And so I want to be mindful of that. At the same time, in my own life, I saw this. That is, I, I mm-hmm. remember I remember being um, a third year student in seminary, which in, in my seminary was the final year, but I was living in Dallas and I'd gotten married. And um, I, I was actually back literally at my home church uh, and every week. Uh, and I would listen to the sermons and I would listen to the way that people taught in the Bible studies. And I would wait. I would sit there and soak it up, kind of like I watch my son's basketball <laughs> games now, where I'm getting irritated and I'm storing, I'm storing it up. Um, and then, but we'd get in the car. My wife and I would get in the car and we'd go to meet friends or, or my family for lunch. And on the way there, I would start unpacking all the things that I thought were wrong about the sermon or the Bible study or both. <laughs> right. And and one day I looked over and Abby was just crying. Her, she just there were tears coming yeah. down her face. And I, and I was, and I was like, Babe, what's wrong? And she she said, you seem so combative and angry. And I remember sitting there stunned and going, <laughs> then having to go into lunch and like kind of, you know, I don't know, smile and make conversation with people um, and sitting there and thinking really long and hard about like, what well, what was it that was so frustrating about that experience? And I think t nails it. I think this book is, in a nutshell now of course the unfortunate thing is reading it as a first year didn't stop me from being that person as a third year um but it was a long time before that that kind of thing went away um well the, the, I, the they, operative
0: yeah. the operative question though in a way is so what did what did you say to that i mean were, were, did you say you know you're right and here's the thing i've been taking these classes or were you kind of like well i i need to be combative or you know precisely because we're yeah, doing yeah, it wrong yeah, or whatever yeah, yeah. you know
1: Yeah, no, it wasn't orthodoxy. It wasn't heresy. It wasn't, you know, it was, it was tones. It was emphases. Uh, It was impressions that I thought, Hey, no, that's not the right. That's not really what the text is doing there. That's not really what uh, we should be talking. We should be talking about this. And as time went on, as I, as I became more mature and older, you start to realize, wait a second, this really is the way that someone preaches, for example, from a pulpit or that develops a homily or develops a Bible study or whatever it is. Um, that is an art as well as a science and there is a kind of scientific hey you know what there's some things you probably need to not say that's what we call heresy uh there's some things you probably should say you probably should have something about uh the good news that god has come to save sinners um in most things you say in in a position of leadership beyond that the rest is pretty much art what do you want to talk about how do you think about that and and to come full circle i think this is actually what the what makes theology and doing theology really cool is that you get to develop a voice and then you get to use that voice um and it it becomes uniquely yours but until then (laughs) it's i think it can be really hard to not just simply take in a brute sense this newfound information, this newfound perspective um, that does seem of ultimate value Mm -hmm. and to then slap it on everything you see and then judge the things that don't measure up or don't measure up in the way you think and then get frustrated. And that's certainly what I was doing. Uh, That's where the grist for the mill was. So it wasn't that I need, it was, it was certainly not a prophetic needing to correct. It was much more like, I think there are better things to say, and it's actually a disservice that we're not saying them. But that's, again, I think, in many respects, the arrogance of youth. But nonetheless, exactly what T. is talking about. Um, right. You know, right. W- and, what is. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say and
0: to, to me, in a way, this this leads into the next question, which is, I, I suppose, this kind of exchange with with Abby or even just your own reflection on. The challenges of being a student in the seminary and what have you is exactly why this book mattered to you. I- I'm assuming that's where you might go
1: with this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, he says, uh, I mean, again, uh, to take it back to the text in, 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 in the nutshell part, too, which is coming up, you know, he highlights, you know, that this is a spiritual disease on the part of the theological student. Um, and it comes from a particular, it's a very, uh, I've already used diabolical, but I think that's, I think that's about right. A diabolical sense of pride. And it's not a pride of like, I'm better, but it's a pride. Uh, it's, it's kind of an intellectual pride in which, um, as he says, the desire is to win rather than to edify. Um, and he doesn't right. say it in, in those exact words, but I think that is, I think in many respects, that's, that's the impulse. Like it's better um, to be right. Than to actually encourage or build up. Now, I want to be very clear about this. I'm not suggesting, and I don't think he's suggesting, that you you allow wrong or something that actually is bad to exist or to be proclaimed just because right. you know it brings comfort. At the same time, um, even the right thing delivered as a weapon is is bad um, and has a can have a really uh, kind of a dark um, a dark edge to it. So uh, I think that's where. In some respects, why did they want us to read this in seminary? To your original question is, is right. how, at least knowing that this is a, a common problem among theological students, um, as again, Teelica tells us it is, even in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, yeah, that's something to be watched out for. Um, and again, you know, I would also say he he discusses this as well, that that's, it actually comes from kind of a good place. Um, it's not necessarily just a desire to correct, but it's also an, an a an appreciation for a, a kind of aesthetic value of theology, and I've already touched on this a moment a moment ago. But that that the way that someone does something is almost as important as what it is that they do. So when we look at sports, we look at any activity, any excellence. To use a um, uh, good old fashioned Greek in a Greek sense, an excellence is something that that cuts to the very heart of what something is. But it's also done the right way at the right time in the right measure. And, and the way that that can be deployed, the way that can be done is almost limitless because we are again, now bringing it to the the new Testament is we are uniquely gifted. We are uniquely able to, to think, speak and live out the faith in, in diverse ways that are, that may all be faithful and yet um, bring different flavors to everything. So there's a kind of beauty that comes from practicing theology and yet, done badly or immaturely, it leads to this very spiritual disease. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, <clears throat> excuse me, it sounds like
0: Telica is drawing deeply from Kierkegaard on some level here. And I, it may just be sort of existentialism in, in general. But that, you know, that there's something to be said with, it's not just what you say, but how you say it, in a mm-hmm. nutshell. That, that, that your own kind of subjective appropriation of certain principles or truths uh, is maybe not... Maybe it's a different kind of importance, but, but it's certainly they're both extremely important to the overall presentation and, and, and let's say, um, living into the, the objective content of, of some kind of doctrine or teaching such as Christianity. But you can say this for just about anything. Like you said, it's true for sports as well. I mean, somebody can sit in the stands and talk about I actually, if I fussed, you know, my kids about this. Sometimes we're watching a game or something. And it's like, oh, they should have done this or why didn't they make that call or whatever but it's one thing to say that from the stands is something else you know when you're actually in the game you know mm-hmm. and that, that it seems like this is what he's you know more or less reminding you know young theologians of is that it's not enough just to memorize i don't know the the, the principles of the westminster confession or or whatever but but in reality how you express or manifest those principles in your own life that's that's the real That's the real, that's where the rubber meets the road, right? It seems like that's kind of the direction he's going in. I mean, one final point there, and then I'm going to shift to the next question. But I mean, to me, it's like, okay, you know, like a lot of people have said this, right? And I think it is, there is something of a kind of modern impulse in that. They kind of turn to the subject famously uh, as, you know, that that sort of occurred in in sort of modernity post uh, Rene Descartes. Okay, that seems relevant and, and pertinent. So how is this book structured that makes it, you know, I don't know, digestible or particularly relevant for the reader today? I mean, again, you could offer, you could offer all kinds of sort of philosophical texts that make the same kind of move. What is it about Teelica's book in particular, the way it's laid out its strengths as weaknesses that you think really makes this a useful text to read?
1: Yeah. um, There's a very practical answer to this and that is it's short. Um, yeah, and by right. that, I mean, like, literally, I, I you know, in reviewing it, um, for the umpteenth time, it took me, I don't know, 30 or 40 minutes to read. And I was trying to read it pretty carefully, because I knew we'd be talking about it. Um, so I think it's one of those actual things where, you know, it's pretty useful for almost anyone who goes through any kind of education. Now, I will, I would also say too what makes a seminarian particularly significant and, and open to the kinds of criticisms he lays out is that. Um, there's an, a, a very communal element to pastoral ministry, uh, or rather any, any ministry really, um, that, that's not found in other areas of expertise. You know, if I'm an engineering guru, I don't even know what to call an engineering guru other than that. <laughs> uh, you know, and I get like all the degrees there are to get in engineering, you know, I'm basically setting myself up to be, you know, to talk to people that are engineers, like hyper engineers. I'm not, I don't have any requirement to speak to anybody else about my engineering because they would neither know nor understand yet the seminarian on the other hand, who's preparing for ministry does, does have a burden to bear for people around them and the way they communicate things. So I, I guess what I'm saying is if anybody is going to be encountering Something that is academically theological or biblical, you know, studies based. If you're doing any kind of uh, work in the church where you're instructing people, I think that that this is practical. I think it's short. I think it's accessible. He has point by point, like this is the problem here, this is the problem here, this is the problem here, and, and at no point in reading the text do I did I actually think, oh yeah, that's not really the problem. Uh, there's a great book I love actually um, called The Hard Thing About Hard Things which I, my brother recommended to me. And I love it, love it, love it. Because the argument that the author makes at the very outset of the book is and it's a business, it's a how-to business book, which is super useful to me who's never started a business and never will. Um, <laughs> right. but, but I read it anyway, because it was kind of like a le- le- le, you know leadership book or something like this. And, um, and like I said, my brother recommended it. And he says in the outset, he's like, hey, look, the hard thing, people always want to talk about how to do the hard things, but then they misidentify the hard thing. So they say, oh yeah, it's hard to fire people. No, it's not hard to fire people. What's hard to fire pe- fire someone is when they're your best friend and they started the company with you and they've now outgrown the role or rather the company's outgrown their role. So wait, As- is this the Mark, the Mark Zuckerberg, write This. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I, no, I, mean, uh, no, I yeah, right. yeah. I think it's, I think it's actually Mark Andreessen. If I'm not mistaken, I'm sure somebody can like listen you. and tell me if it is, but, uh, but he's one of the co-founders of Andreessen Horowitz, the, uh, the angel, okay, in, uh, yeah, the yeah, angel yeah, investment firm anyway. Um, but no, but I think in some respects, that's what, yeah, people have said this before, but like the degree to which we, we return to the same things like, yeah. Hey, guess what? Don't be spiritually arrogant. Don't be theologically arrogant. Don't be, don't Lord knowledge over other people. Like I don't need to be told that, but the, the unique ways that that appears and the degree to which he diagnoses it, I think is really valuable because it's a reminder of like how subtle and in some cases how infectious that kind of um, that kind of, thinking can actually be so i think it's immensely useful even today
0: so it is it just is it just a letter like you you know or i mean you know how is it is are there multiple chapters multiple letters like how is it structured exactly
1: uh no like it's it's one sustained essay but basically he's got the the chapters are like yep a preliminary understanding of the reader uh, with the reader of like what theology Mm -hmm. is the anxiety of the ordinary christian about theology which he he says at the very first page, like how many of us have heard someone say, "Oh, don't go to seminary; you'll basically lose your faith." Let me assure you, dear listener, if you think that nobody actually says this, um, I had a number of people that actually came up to me when, and when I told them I was going to seminary, like, "Oh, you're going to seminary? Why? Like, aren't you just going to go and learn about how things? You know, the Bible's not true, or like faith is ridiculous, or something like this?" Um, and and that's something that I. I was rather unprepared for, uh, but it, but it absolutely happened to me. So when he's talking about this and here again, we're talking a book that was published in 1962, you know, I think that's telling. I think that indicates there actually is a deep anxiety um, on the part of um, the, everyday, the everyday Christian about whether or not theological education is even valuable. Um, and then of course he hits the theological change of voice, the wisdom of the world as the ally of faith. So one of the oldest questions in the church, which is what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem, uh, as Tertullian, Mm -hmm. uh, the church father put it, Um, the lofty and difficult art of dogmatics, the hazard and promise of the aesthetic. And then finally, wow. uh, he gets, on, he
0: gets all of this in 40 pages. <laughs> it's pretty oh, impressive. you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Like very, very of, economical. The, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. The hazard of the aesthetic is two pages long. It starts on page 31 and finishes on 33. So these are chapters <laughs> that are like nuggets. So of course you could expand on any of this, but I think it hits mm-hmm. like here again, that the desire to speak that the intoxicating power of doing theology and it is, it can be intoxicating, but that's a promise as well as a threat. And, and that's, that's what I found it to be. So, uh, you know, it's one of those things I didn't really appreciate at the time. I knew enough to be like, Hey, this is going to matter. But at the end, I still come back to it and go, yep, I forgot that. <laughs> yes. I probably need right. a reminder, you know? So, yeah, it's, it's, the kind of book I, you know, I suppose, yeah, you, you read it
0: once a year or something, right. Just to yeah. kind of, just as, as a kind of, it's like a checkup or something like taking your car in for, you know, uh, you know, the, the sort of annual checkup or something physical if you will right, right. Is there, okay what am i doing am i doing all this the right way um all right so last question before we jump into our categories uh yeah. you know when it comes to its ongoing significance because it sounds quaint but like you said it's a little old right uh a lot of our readers our listeners i should say or readers for that matter you know are, are probably not planning to go to seminary mm-hmm. um so so you know why does this book still matter today like why should somebody go go look for it though <laughs> i have a confession to make and one of, one of our listeners reached out to me and said that death and immortality the book that i covered last week was not really available on amazon and in fact i, I looked it up and he was right about that and i think you had alluded to that as well so you know, some of these books might even be hard to dig up and we we like them i'm sure i would imagine any library could find these books for you they could they could you know get them on interlibrary loan or maybe you can find them on a books or some of these sort of uh, antique books. And then maybe this one is widely available on Amazon. I have not checked, but the point being though, is that somebody will listen to this and they'll probably think, Oh, that sounds interesting. I'm going to go check it out. So make the case. Why should they bother going through a books and Amazon <laughs> and all the different sort of booksellers to find this particular book today? What difference will it make?
1: Yeah. I think it's, I think it's just this, if you're going to have leadership in any way, shape or form in the church, or not and i don't mean paid lay leadership if you're going to teach a sunday school class or a, a little kid's you know uh catechetical thing i anything i mean i think it's valuable to have a sense of what the task is about thinking well about the faith and the peril therein uh is is it actually the case that um that that even in doing instruction is the desire for some kind of, uh, not change necessarily, but some kind of growth in faith? Or is it about uh, solely knowledge uh, or the cultivation mm-hmm. or appearance of intelligence? And it, that sounds obvious, but but here again, I think even uh, when one's teaching, uh, again, a lay, a lay it, may, it wouldn't be lay theology necessarily, but like a lay, a lay Bible study. Um, is it good to study what you're going to be talking about? Sure. But as soon as you have that edge of having studied, how do you feel about that? Um, and again, I'm making right. it rather therapeutic or rather emotional, but, but, but I think it's, I, I think it is. And even, even, I would say for my, in my own life, even when I begin to take on leadership responsibilities in ministries, long before I went to seminary, there was a kind of, uh, status upgrade, depending on the the situation and the, and the and I think this is this speaks to all of that because it's a fundamental human thing that when we get mm-hmm. some kind of advantage or some kind of extra knowledge, it, it's the easiest thing in the world to to presume a certain um I hate to say betterness because I mean again nobody would cop to that but that's what it is it feels. It feels like there's a position of advantage or heightened uh, ability. and that's not necessarily bad, but that's got to be tempered by the same humility of what's the purpose in that in that extra information knowledge, whatever it is, leadership. So it so sounds
0: I, like it might really be relevant for clergy right? yes, in some respects absolutely. I mean, I mean sort of sort of humorously, I mean, but I think it's worth saying because people that listen in, they're going to be coming from different parts of the country, possibly even in the world. And you know, I do think your background in Texas, and I can identify with you in this regard, coming from the southeast myself. That I know Texas is in the southeast, so I don't want to get into that discussion or that debate right now. Southwest. But uh, right, right, but, uh, but regardless, I th- there are parts of America even today. I mean, albeit I would say somewhat less so, where the local pastor is one of the major figures in town. You know, mm-hmm. he's. Uh, or, or she, but yeah, let's, be, let's be frank, probably in those contexts, likely a he, is uh, you know, considered a leader, shakes all the hands at the Friday night football game, um, is called upon for all kinds of civic activities. And it sounds like, in a way, Telica's book is kind of a reminder to not let that go to your head. Now, if you've gone to a major university, or if you're working in the classroom, you're trying to convince 18 year olds that theology still matters. I think a lot of ways like, some of these, these concerns that Telica has are quickly alleviated because it's so humbling, right? <laughs> so like, When you realize like the theology department and the engineering department or the theology department and the nursing department are not valued the same way at your university, that, that opens up a completely different window on the experience of studying theology. But it sounds like what Telica is really getting at, and again, I'm, I'm just sort of gathering this from what you said, as he's speaking to those places and they still exist and there were actually a lot of places that are still like this where theology is maybe the kind of linchpin of a community and the and the person who you know disseminates his or her opinions on theology is taken with great seriousness and that person needs to remind himself or herself that you know handle with care basically
1: yeah look if I could have one more personal anecdote I, Please. I think that, yeah yeah I, I also teach a a Bible study class uh, at my church on Sunday mornings, and um, I'm the only teacher. I got kind of thrown into it because they were like, hey, you're a professor. Go for it. Um, And I I, I, I didn't mind. Um, And the other person left. Um, Well, the problem is I'm one Bible study leader um, and. Uh, That means I got to be at church every single week. And so the whole time I've been like, oh, okay, cool. Well, I'm going to, I would like to cultivate somebody else or at least ask somebody else to kind of bear the burden, so to speak with me. Um, And this is going to come as a shock to you. Nobody ever wants to do it ever. Um, And so I've (laughs) kind of stopped asking, but then it hit me like a ton of bricks one day. Why I would, for a long time, I was like, why, why will nobody take up, you know, some of the role? Like I'll, I'll still do even the majority, but why wouldn't someone not, you know, take a, take a Sunday here or there. And then i realized uh that when i'm in some when i'm in like bible study or sunday school and i'm sitting there and i'm listening to somebody else teach th- almost everybody knows that i am a religion and philosophy professor and when they're teaching everybody or sorry that when i'm not teaching whoever is right. is likely you're judging death. <laughs> yes right. i am That's sitting right. there yeah. And, and understandably, people are terrified by this. And they're like, well, I, I don't want to do that. No, thank you. So, and, and it makes great sense because in the past, especially when I first started attending this church, I was in the, just the audience and I would ask people questions. And of course, I, I knew what I was asking and I knew why I was asking it. But, and I thought it needed to be asked. But then of course, it immediately introduced a real tension because I'm asking a question that this is a lay person who's volunteering out of the sake of, the goodwill towards the bible study class and then now they're getting interrogated by a a theology professor like no thank you and Mm -hmm. when i say interrogated i wasn't going after anybody but asking a question what do we think of you know um and then i'm surprised that nobody wants to do it again well you know what that's where like even is it bad that i did that well no but but here again the desire for to to ask the right question to take to nurture the conversation in a direction that i think would be helpful probably wasn't for the edification of that leader it was probably for my own sense of like a a a useful or relevant bible study and the result is that i poisoned the well (laughs) so it's not exactly what tlicka talks about but i think it's the same thing like do you to what extent do you balance the rightness of the comment or the well-intentioned character of the comment versus the the reality that it creates, whether that's edification or whether that's, you know, communal participation in the exercise of of talking about scripture or um, theology together. So anyway, another final anecdote.
0: Gotcha. Okay. And and I like that. And again, it has a wider application. So, all right, Right. due to time, I think we're going to shift in the categories. Now I'm going to, I'm going to ad lib the first question. The first question of course is like, basically, would you recommend this to, you know somebody you're hanging out with at a at a you know a high school basketball game or something but i'm going to slightly flip that because i think we've already answered that question to some extent yeah. is there anybody you wouldn't wreck here's my question is there anybody you wouldn't recommend this book to or do you think it has kind of a lot of universal applicability
1: i think i would recommend this i'm going to flip it back <laughs> i'm going to recommend it to <laughs> anybody who's Who's interested in theology? Period. So I think most people who are probably listening to this, I think, would be valuable for them to consider at least. Um, maybe not purchase the book. See if you can find like an essay version, a PDF version on the internet or something. Um, but I, I do think it's valuable for anybody who's thinking seriously about theology. Because even if you're not in leadership, uh, I do think it it would matter uh, just in terms of a, a way one thinks about the task. I I don't really know if if one's not interested in study at all. And one is like, this would be a bad at a little league baseball game because you know what? (laughs) I don't think it's just like necessary to think about what it means to study theology. If someone's not interested in theology period or, you know, or, or leadership in some respect. So I think it's, I think it's pretty broadly applicable, but I think it really, it really begins to sing when you're talking to people who are, you know serious and engaged and ambitious and mo- or motivated to or they just have a lot of questions and so they want to have some of those questions answered so they're thinking about seminary that's the person who I think you need to this that needs to really get their hands on this book okay I got you all right next question if you were to adapt this
0: book for the screen what would be the genre and we and we could probably <laughs> expand that out to a little bit like you know is there a kind of fictionalized form of this book that you can imagine in some way. I, I, if you don't mind, I hate to do this. I'm, I'm being kind of rude. But I'm thinking like Dead Poets Society or something like that. Right? You know, so what these, okay, what are these uh, movies about teachers? You know,
1: I, I don't know if you I don't know if you see it otherwise. But I'm curious. To know what you think. Uh, no, I, I got. I think that's a great example. I actually think that I've got I've got a scene and I've got a film. Uh, okay. I, I don't know that I'm not great at genre. I, I think it's the Goodwill hunting bar scene. Uh, I think this is Clark uh, pardon the pun um, or pardon the the overlap I think this is Clark in the bar scene trying to embarrass (laughs) Ben Affleck's character with his so-called knowledge and everyone hates him first of all because it's clear he's just status symboling and then two he doesn't even know what he's talking about he doesn't really know Mm. The information. His immaturity is there for all to to see. And of course, Will Hunting exposes it. And <laughs> I think that's in many respects exactly the dynamic that Telik is after is it, it's almost in, or not I don't want to say it's impossible, but it's very difficult for the incoming student to, um, or in my case, the outgoing student, to to not turn out like Clark without a lot of thought and care especially that's required in, in, in Christian service. Um, and then the other, the other film actually is with um, the Ryan Reynolds movie, just friends where uh, I have not seen that. No. Oh man. Ryan Reynolds is uh, a, a music executive and he is not popular in high school and he becomes popular later on. Uh, that is to say he becomes wildly successful and he has to go back to his hometown. Um, and he just basically goes on a train crash. A train wreck uh, of a return visit in which he basically alienates everybody around him because he's trying to show how awesome he is, and everybody hates him. And it makes great sense because he's not being, um, he's not actually doing what he has set out to do. He's trying to do something entirely different. So I think it's the bar scene. I think it's uh, just friends. Which, by the way, got gotcha. worth seeing. I, <laughs> you make me a little nervous and it's almost anybody else i think absolutely yes but uh yeah, we'll see I, yeah you've got to see it and then you can tell me if it's stupid it is stupid but i'm not I'm not a big ryan reynolds
0: guy but okay but uh, all right so next question I, i'm not saying i wouldn't watch it though. Um, I, I take it back don't watch it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 all right if, if you're if you're creating a spotify playlist to accompany the reading of this book where do you start so like one or two or three songs or something
1: yeah like that. uh number one song come behold the wondrous mystery uh an old hymn uh because i think that's actually what the theological task is beholding the wondrous mystery and giving word to it it also is a hymn that has fantastic lyrics um i think it's one of my favorite lyrical hymns uh and then second what's my age again by blink 182 uh because right. it seems to me uh that this is again a maturity a maturity book it's a hey you need to know this you're not going to live it and everything's going to seem backwards and you know what to do and you don't do it um but eventually you're going to come back around and be like okay right telic is right this is the task that we're facing and you know after the intoxication has worn off this is uh this is what theology is and what it's for Gotcha. Okay, good deal. And then finally, is there a passage from the book
0: you'd like to share? Like a, a, a relatively short quote or something like that? Yeah.
1: Um, well, that's too long. No, there's not. There's not. I, I had a quote and then <laughs> I looked at it and I was like, I already kind of talked about it. So we'll just let we'll just stop there. We'll, we'll Wait, let just it be to your turn. In. The categories, part.
0: Okay. All right. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> That's you right. Know what? I'm going to, I'm going to allow because we, we have, we have gone a good while here. So I'm going to, I'm going to allow you punting the category this time. Um, all right. Good deal. I really enjoyed that. Um, you know, everybody should hopefully uh, be persuaded to at least go on some kind of hunt for this text and uh, you know, maybe even find it edifying as Tilica recommends. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take another break. We'll come back in a few minutes and we'll get started with Jacques Ellul's Anarchy and Christianity. Be right back. Welcome back. All right, we're now on the the back half of today's episode. And uh, I've decided to feature uh, Jacques Ellul's book Anarchy and Christianity, which came out in 1998. And Clark, before I begin, you know, what what are your impressions of this book or of Ellul in general? I mean, are you
1: a fan? Have you read him before? Where do you stand on this stuff? Yeah, I actually started my, my first attempt at a defil and my first attempt, I mean, my first edition of my first chapter uh, was focusing on technology. And I read a bunch of Alul back then, um, but it's been a while. Uh, so I've read that I've read a good bit of the technological society, mm-hmm. uh, but I have not read um, Anarchy and Christianity. So I'm pretty excited to hear what you're going to say. Um, so, so maybe just jumping right into it. Tell me a little bit about uh, Elul, um and why you think that, that he's significant.
0: Well, you know, he's one of these people that the the first handful of times that his name came up, and I I was going to say more about this later, maybe I'll just do it now, but it was sort of in connection to the Unabomber, (laughs) right? So, (laughs) I mean, you know, I I, Ted Kaczynski, right, who is this, uh, you know, sort of rogue, uh, you know, mathematician who thought that technology was, you know, destroying, you know, all all of humanity, and he moved out to Montana. I think most people who are listening probably know the story. He uh, bombed. People that he thought were uh, contributing to the kind of degradation of modern society and so on, and ultimately was arrested. I think his brother uh, turned him in. Mm-hmm. So, Alul has, like, that was sort of my first kind of introduction to the, the figure of Jacques Alul. Other people, I think, were, were colored, obviously, by this um, association with the Unabomber. And I think for a while, Alul fell into a kind of disfavor. I, I think, if, let's say well, the well, Chris, next, can, yeah. can I
1: interrupt you real quick yes. and say, what, what is precisely the connection? Because I want to make that clear. What's the connection between Alul and the and Ted Kaczynski?
0: Truth, truthfully, I, I'm not 100% sure because I've not read Kaczynski's writings. I think I do have one of his books somewhere. I think I picked it up in a used bookstore. Um, I've not even read it. Uh, so that tells you about, about my level yeah. of interest. You know how these bookstores are, but- um, I, I think maybe uh, to Kaczynski's manifesto um, makes uh, some allusion to a lull and, you know, we can, we can maybe come back to this later, but it, it's certainly nothing in a lulls work per se. And, and I think that's very important to note. Yes. Um, in, in the same way that, you know, if somebody listened to, I don't know, uh, Sergeant Pepper's backwards on their, on their, <laughs> on their vinyl record player and then went out and did something crazy or, or maybe even a, a more concrete example. I don't think people hold Christopher Nolan responsible for that massacre that theater in colorado after the, mm-hmm. the kid who was really jazzed up for the you know heath ledger's portrayal of, of joker uh, so at the end of the day i mean it's one of those kind of situations where i mean whatever to whatever extent Alul influenced kaczynski you know it, it's i think it's pretty hard to say that Alul himself would have ever a in fact i'm going to talk about how he's a pacifist there how Alul himself would have ever have baptized kaczynski's actions there's there's no way but but right. you know he he was an arch critic of technology as you pointed out mm-hmm. modern technology in particular and we'll come back to it but the more i've learned about him and this is to really get to your question i mean the more i've learned about him the more fascinating of a figure he he becomes to me so he's born in bordeaux in france in 1912 and he, he dies in 1994 so he, he lived quite a long time and you know one of the interesting things about Alul is that you know he's not one of these he wasn't sort of a a person of privilege i mean he He grew up in in, in fairly uh, humble uh, circumstances, and he had to put himself through school uh, and ended up doing a doctorate, uh, not as it were, on philosophy. A lot of people think of him as a philosopher. He really isn't one. He's more of a a study, uh, a a sociologist first and foremost, and a student of law. So his dissertation was on uh, the laws of ancient Rome, and he did that at the University of Bordeaux. Uh, and he got involved in politics in the, in, the, in the early 1930s. Now, we all know what was going on in the early 1930s, right? This is the kind of ramp up to World War II. And Alul gets very intrigued by uh, sort of Marxism to the one side and fascism to the other side. He's a fierce opponent of fascism. And I will say, I, I'm not gonna talk about this today, but I recently worked through one of his essays from this period Called uh, fascism, son of liberalism, which is really, really interesting. It, and 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 basically, you know, he wrote that text after visiting, kind of as an observer, a Nazi meeting, and just left there like shaken to the core of like, oh my god, like you know, this this Nazi thing isn't is is not going away. It's gonna be a real problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he he gets engaged in the kind of anti-fascistic movements um, of that time period. He participates in the Spanish Civil War. He then later opposes uh, the Regime de Vichy in, in France, the, the kind of Nazi allied French uh, government. Uh, and then he did, you know, throughout the, the, throughout the war, he forged paperwork to prevent Jews from being sent to places like Auschwitz, right? And he's even been honored by the state of Israel as a friend. Uh, well, I think, I think the, the designation is righteous among the nations as a, as a friend to um, mm-hmm. Jewish people. So he's you know a, a fascinating you know kind of life already. When the war is over, he takes up this appointment um, as professor of history and sociology on institutions at Bordeaux, uh, and then he becomes the the sort of chair of the Institute of Political Studies also at Bordeaux. And he basically stays there writing and doing research for for decades. And you know he's a really interesting intellectual because you know I think you know this is probably one of the most obvious things to say about him, but it's really worth pointing out he's the kind of person that moved very fluently in different sort of uh, uh disciplines or fields so he's a trained sociologist but he's also a historian of again of Rome and of, of ancient institutions i think a lot of that bleeds into his sociology but he was also a reformed christian he was a protestant even though he was from france and he was a I, I don't think he was ordained i'd have to double check on that i don't think he was ordained but he was certainly a very active lay theologian he was a i guess maybe you know to go back to your theological book clark I mean he was the kind of guy that was sitting in the, in the Sunday school lesson, you know, and I mean, we'll, we'll give him uh, we'll give him the credit and say he wasn't arrogant. Maybe he was, I don't know, but, uh, but, but he was he, sitting, he in- wasn't like you Clark. <laughs> right, right. Maybe he read I mean, he might have even read some Tilica. Um but he was sitting in the Sunday school lesson with his arms crossed and like really paying attention, basically uh, really checking out to see if this uh, Sunday school leader knew what he was talking about. But uh, in any case, you know, Alul, because of his status as a French Protestant, which again is a little bit unusual on its face, you know, he's often been grouped among a number of other major kind of reformed figures from the time period. So people sort of associate his, his theological interests with Karl Barth quite frequently. Um, he's also been compared sociologically to Karl Marx. But I got to say this, I just, just wear it on its, you know, on my sleeve here. The biggest influence on Jacques Alul was undoubtedly Soren Kierkegaard. And that's both a good and a bad thing, if you will, from a Kierkegaardian perspective. I mean, I, I think it's mostly a good thing. Um, I think it speaks to Kierkegaard's uh, sort of relevance, you know, outside of just theology and philosophy, but all the way into uh, sociology. But of course, given Ellul's controversial nature, I mean, I think some people might be a little embarrassed that you know, Kierkegaard contributed to this anarchistic uh, you know, program, this, this opposition to the modern state and so on. Uh, that opens up its own sort of can of worms within Kierkegaard studies. But in any case, uh, I started becoming particularly interested in little when I was working on my 2019 book, uh, Kier- excuse me, uh, Kierkegaard and the Question Concerning Technology. And I, and I was doing these different sort of uh, ways that Kierkegaard has impacted the reception of modern technology today. And I looked at various people like Paul Tillich, Martin Heidegger, and then I had to look at little, And during that time period, I sort of realized like, how indebted Alul actually is to Kierkegaard. I mean, he cites him in some of the big works uh, like the technological society, but you know, he he's sort of his own kind of emphasis on dialectic, his critique of modern culture. These are like through lines throughout uh Elul's work. And I, I realized that they were really very much kindred spirits. And I, I really felt the need to, to dig into him more. And I'm not alone in this. I mean, you know, I, different people, uh, Frederick wrote who's a, uh, uh, a French scholar of Alul's thought says that Kierkegaard is the the, the fundamental source of Alul's thinking. So this is, I think, a pretty uh, heavy uh, statement. And so this is how I got involved and got interested in Alul. Basically,
1: I mean, I, I think it's probably uh, going to be a, a clear answer to this. But do you think this is the the apex, the high point of Alul's writing career? No,
0: I, I don't think you could say that. I mean, for example, Aldous Huxley, right? The, the, the fiction writer who wrote Brave New World in 1932. Huxley said that the technological society, quote, makes the case that I tried to make in Brave New World, okay? Mm-hmm. So a, lo- a little technological society, which comes out in the 1950s, um, I think probably by any sort of fair sort of standard is his magnum opus. Um, it's the most widely read work that he offered. He also came out with a number of book, books in the 1960s that probably are more personally influential You know, in, in terms of my own work. One of them is called Propaganda. The other one is yeah. called the, the Political Illusion. Um, and that, that book came out, Illusion uh, Politique, that came out in 1965. So I think The Technological Society, Propaganda, and The Political Illusion would be the three major works by Lowell. Now, again, all of those are sort of under his you know, I guess you might say his day job, right? His, his sort of sociology uh, of of modern society, his, you know, his his hobby was theology, right? Christian theology Mm -hmm. in particular. And I think anarchy and Christianity would fall under that sort of heading. So it's a later work, it's a smaller work, but because you and I are doing theological works and we're not doing philosophical or sociological works, I picked this book. because I think it is a kind of summary of a lot of what he has to say.
1: Well, uh, I mean, I guess you've to some extent answered this, but to, when did you first encounter it? Was it 2019 when you did Kierkegaard on the question of Te- of technology? Or was it even earlier than that, that you came across this essay or later, I suppose?
0: Well, so, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I was already interested in technology and its relationship to theology. You know, when I started reading a little uh, sort of with with fresh mm-hmm. eyes. I had done a course uh, at Villanova a number of times called God, Spirituality, and Technology. I usually had a couple of readings from a little in there. He wasn't the kind of main figure uh, in the class. And I and I think as I look back, I think I initially signed him as a kind of foil to, to certain mm-hmm. other uh, figures that we were going to read in the class. But every time I read him for this course, you know, we would get you know, sort of graduate students who were sitting around a table. and they would always be like, this is a little guy, you know, he's not so bad. You know? and, uh, <laughs> and and there was this kind of general yeah. sense that like, maybe he had been, uh, you know, maybe treated a little bit too roughly by uh, the Academy in recent years. And I think probably for me, the real turning point was not actually the book, Kierkegaard, the question concerning technology. Um, that that certainly, again, was another step towards me getting interested in a little But. The real turning point for me was 2020, I- i.e. the pandemic. So mm-hmm. I, don't know, I don't know what you guys did. I mean, I think you probably told me before. I'm sure we talked some during that time. But, you know, it seems like everybody during the pandemic had, like, their thing. Like, some people watched, like, all the episodes of The Sopranos, like, you know, four times or whatever. Or, you know, some people got really into, like, jogging or whatever. Um, we actually were in a weird situation. I remember being in a, sitting in a parking lot in New Jersey while my kids were in a baseball practice. And I called my wife. And she was she was in Philly, on, on the west side of Philly, and I said, "I think they're gonna shut down everything, and I think we need to get out of here." <laughs> and uh, Villadova had already canceled classes for like, I forgot what it, the initial cancellation was, but it was like a week or we're gonna we're gonna postpone things for a week or two to see how things go. But I was getting like this really distinct impression that this wasn't gonna go away anytime soon. And so my wife called her parents or whatever, and so we we grabbed a bunch of things, we grabbed some books and we threw it in the car and we drove to Alabama, right? So we get to uh, Shelby County, Alabama, which is south of Birmingham, about 30 or 40 miles, pretty rural. So we're stuck out there essentially as the pandemic kind of moved southward and people got more and more sort of anxious in, in Alabama, you know, life got increasingly isolated. So I found myself in this kind of rural area, you know, with, with a bunch of books to read. I'm still teaching somewhat, but um, we, we were doing online courses, I guess. Um, but even that was a little bit disjointed. So I started reading a little. I started reading a lot of a lull okay, at this time because I was really interested in the questions he was exploring. Now, a few weeks later, we ended up getting a cabin in upstate New York and we went up to Cooperstown and we stayed there as well. And that's what I remember specifically reading this book, Anarchy and Christianity, um, You know, right there by, by uh, Lake Otsego up there. And just kind of thinking to myself, geez, is this guy not talking about 2020? Is he not talking about this crazy election year and the pandemic and the the sort of challenges that are being, you know, sort of imposed upon us by, you know, this kind of hierarchical state engine that none of us really know how it works or anything. And, And suddenly it just dawned on me. I don't want to say that I saw him as prophetic, but I don't know. I kind of did, honestly. So I was sort of like, well, "I
1: mean." Yeah, well, let me also provide a, a brief um, warning to the dear listener. Uh, this is not a recipe for how to either improve your mental health or just live a happy life. If basically <laughs> there's a pandemic, you go up to an upstate cabin in New York or rural isolation in Alabama, and then read a bunch of Alul. Like that is not um, a recipe for. Uh, what most people would consider success. So, Wis- again- wisdom,
0: Clark. I was pursuing right. wisdom. Okay, and, and you like- know this
1: makes this makes so much sense of our conversations <laughs> during this time. I'm like going to the park and it's outdoors, and I'm feeling great about life. And you're like all of a sudden coming out with your new beard and <laughs> your, your waist length hair, and you're like, oh, this this Alul guy is really <laughs> onto something. Okay, got it. Yeah, that's
0: somewhat fair. That's somewhat fair. <laughs> that's, that's somewhat fair. I, I can't I can't totally deny. It. Well, uh, so I, I think you know this is I, I ultimately what really appealed to me about Alul was I felt like he was speaking to the pandemic. And, and right. And frankly, I, I, I still do. And I mean, I, and I you know, not to overly anticipate here, but in terms of like where I'm at with Alul right now, I'm I'm actually sort of finishing a major section of my my next academic book that's coming out. It's it's called tentatively Kierkegaard Statecraft and the question of political theology. So I'm going okay. with this question uh, in the title here. Uh, and Alul is going to compromise a major section of one of my middle chapters, uh, precisely because I think his critique of the state is maybe more relevant than ever in this kind of crazy, hectic uh, election year. And again, I don't want to anticipate too much, but I- I'm not I'm not over my whole phase yet. And yes, my hair has gotten quite
1: long. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's jump into it, man. Like, let, yeah. let's get, what, what is this what is uh, this book about in a nutshell? And, and if you don't mind, let, let's combine these. Let, like, what do you think are the strengths and the weaknesses? And we can, we can separate those But if you really want to. But w- what's the book about?
0: Yeah, I mean, so yeah, in, in short, right, because it, it, is, it is actually a short book. I mean, uh, Alul tackles this topic in sort of three, three overarching sections. It begins with an introduction, which I'll come back to in a second. It's pretty useful, I think, biographically. It kind of positions him on the intellectual map of the 20th century, um, and then he has these two major kind of units, if you will, one is called anarchy from a Christian standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one is called the Bible as the source of anarchy. And so under these two major headings, he has uh, sort of a number of shorter chapters and these give like d- different degrees of exposition and analysis. So uh, it, it's a fairly simple book when you kind of pick it up. I mean, you're not, you're not sort of looking at this kind of labyrinthine index of mm-hmm. of chapters and subchapters, And I think ultimately uh, again i can come back to this in a minute but ultimately that would also be one of the weaknesses of the books there's a at times a little kind of begs the question um but he, it's still the, the simplicity i think is part of its power as well because you pick it up and it's sort of like it's sort of like wow there's yeah there's some there's some there's some powerful suggestions uh in mm-hmm. in this word um yeah go ahead
1: no no you go ahead sorry i i was you yeah. know
0: well, no, so I was going to say, I mean, jumping into the each of the sections. So the introduction is pretty interesting because he, he basically says, look, I was a Marxist. OK, he kind of he kind of confesses, you know, I was a Marxist. I was really drawn to uh, not only the sort of economic and, and political and sort of social thought of Karl Marx, um, but also really even to Marxist like socio-political movements. And I, I think I mentioned earlier, I mean, he had fought in the Spanish Civil War and he had some of these, you know, anti-fascistic uh, Tendencies that has initially channeled him through, through Marxist uh, thinking and Marxist uh, social movements. But he also, around the same time, became drawn to Christianity. And uh, he talks about this as well. And then by the 1930s, he'd started kind of, to use an expression you like, Clark, I mean, he started seeing the emperor had no clothes with Marxism. Like he felt like, in reality, Marxism sounds great. In reality, though, it cashes out in the kind of same totalitarian regime that he was rejecting from the Nazi fascistic side. So he starts looking for a third way, a kind of alternative. And he basically says that as he read the Bible, again, not initially searching for a political answer, but really just for his own spiritual edification, as he read the Bible, he started realizing that the Bible, you know, has a lot to say about how human beings are to relate to empires and government and violence and these kind of things. And then he says, and I think it's worth reading this uh, quote, because I think it's pretty important. He says that when he read the Bible, quote, he realized it isn't possible to give simple obedience to the state. And then he goes on to say, and I also quote here, there is in the Bible an orientation to a certain anarchism. Okay. So the goal of his text, he says, is to lay out this case in short. So that's, that's the, that's the nature of the introduction.
1: Okay. Uh, Yeah. I'm, I'm really dying with the question I was going to ask a moment ago is how, how, and again, I know I'm anticipating what you're going to tell us anyway, but how does what seems to me not an anarchical book, the Bible fit in with a kind of Christian anarchy?
0: Right. Okay. So let's, yeah, you're, you're beating me to the punch in a way, but I think that's a good question. I mean, so he really begins the first thing he says in this text is he says like I want to I want to basically you know I want to clarify what Christian anarchy would mean okay and how we're going to define it so he starts off immediately by saying it's pacifistic right so again this is why I think the sort of association with the Unabomber is is kind of silly on its face because Alul himself immediately rules out violence uh, Mm -hmm. as an alternative uh, for any anarchistic movement so he says Christian anarchy will be pacifistic, and he goes on to list a number of characteristics. It's anti-nationalistic, it's anti-capitalist, it's anti-statist, and he includes in this, and this is very important, he includes in this, the quote, I'm quoting him, the falsified democracies of bourgeois states. Uh, And then finally, he says that Christian anarchy is a form of conscientious objection, which denies and advance the conflation of of politics and action. This is a really, I I think, a very important point to a lot of what Alul has to say, not not even just in this book, but in general, he thinks that basically all modes of human thinking and action have been co-opted by politics, right? But that politics is itself co-opted by technology. So he sees like this kind of incredible, this this increasingly diminished sort of, I guess, domain of human action that where everything, whether it's our ideas about God, or whether it's, um, you know, you, 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 I'll give an example, okay? This, let's, let's take the Taylor Swift, God help me, here I go, I'm doing it. Let's take the Taylor Swift uh, phenomenon, okay? The leading up, to, leading up to the Super Bowl, Taylor Swift's appearances at the Super Bowl became essentially identified, right, with either you were pro Taylor Swift, which meant you, which meant you were sort of left wing, or you were anti-Taylor Swift, which meant you were right-wing, right? And and mm-hmm. your opinions about her music, not only her music, though, about the NFL, about the whole, NFL isn't what it used to be. Look at all these shots of Taylor Swift. Or the NFL is great. It's expanding its audiences, and it's super progressive. Look at all of the love they're showing to Taylor Swift. You know, everything got funneled through this political lens. Alul would have totally say, yes, of course, right? Because this is what this is what has happened as the as the state has increasingly learned to use every opportunity, uh, and its power for propaganda, everything that we do football, music, culture, uh, movies, um, you know, artistic productions of any sort, and so on, they're only understood through the lens of politics. Um, and he thinks this is doing a great disservice. So he thinks that Christianity, should stand as a site where, where there's a kind of no said to this movement to sort of say that all meaningful action, all meaningful thinking is, is ultimately political in nature. He's, he's deeply opposed to that.
1: So how does, how does technology fit into that? Cause you mentioned that a moment ago, but I, I want to, I mean, is, is it that there's a certain way of thinking technologically that this kind of, pol- you know, ersatz, theological slash political thought encourages or what's the relationship between technology and theology and politics?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a really relevant question and and I'm, I'm going to answer it to some extent, but I really think we might have to save that for like the next season of this, of this podcast where, when I will pick the political illusion, because, you know, that's the text where he really lays this out. He really only, you know, you can, there's a lot of echoes of the political illusion in anarchy and Christianity, but he only kind of just touches on these points. Um, my sort of shorthand kind of summary of the political illusion would be something like this. You know, technology's influence on the state is manifold. It's really, it really isn't reducible to just like, let's say, so- social media. It, and I would say a lot of it has to do with bureaucracy and, and state administration. So since right. all technology tend, tends towards efficiency and the modern state has grown to such an extent that things can only be handled by dividing them into smaller kind of divisions and, and sort of authorities... That he sees that like the the modern democratic state is authoritarian, even if it doesn't think it is, right? And it's always it's always tending the rule of efficiency and 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 power that's wielded by politicians. Now, Aul spends a lot of time in the political illusion, sort of arguing that we often accept this authoritarianism relatively uh, benignly because we believe that our votes matter, right? And that like. Like, you know, I'm not being ruled over because I have a vote. This is the illusion. This is is for him where propaganda is important because we start sort of assuming that we have actual agency, but he goes into great detail and he draws on on the political illusion. He draws on a lot of resources, uh, really from the era, 1950s, 1960s, but things that are still very much true today. I mean, again, just look at COVID, right? Look at all the federal agencies and different groups, different sectors and interests and PACs and everything that were involved with either, I mean, how, take, take your pick, like either the decision to, to, to sort of you know, start lockdowns or uh, the development of technology such as vaccines. I mean, all of these things involved multiple bureaucratic administrations. Um, and so a little points out, did your vo- vote for Trump or Biden really influence, you know, for example, something like the pandemic? No, like you know, it didn't matter. And it, you can look at Trump and Biden for all of their kind of rhetorical differences. They both supported very similar policies vis-a-vis the visa visa pandemic precisely because these bureaucracies and administrations were actually in charge in some sense or another. Right? So,
1: so let me let me take you back to the text then, because yeah. I, I do think and I think this actually makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm glad you, you said it that way. Is the anarchy that it is quite that the bureau? It's kind of an anarchos of of bureaucracy of efficiency of capitalism of any kind of governmental structure. Is that the idea in, in favor of a like, in other words, it's anarchic as it pertains to human practices and productions, but it, but it's under God's rule. I, I mean, I'm offering that up. I don't, I haven't. read. Yeah. The so, so he,
0: yeah, right. So he, he he deals with this question in a couple of different ways. I mean, he says uh, you're kind of on one side of this problem is that anarchists themselves will say, well, Christianity, it clearly isn't anarchistic. I mean, look at its history. It's always allied itself uh, with the state, at least since the time of of Constantine the Great, when, when, when the church became this kind of institutionalized wing of state power, Christianity has had a great stake in the establishment of Western culture. And so Alul sort of points out that a lot of the kind of nihilism or the anarchism that sort of opposed to the state uh, in modern culture, usually is also opposed to religion, especially Christianity. Um, and he sort of points out that, you know, this is, in his opinion, kind of a fair criticism, okay? He thinks that, yeah, it's it's fair to say that Christianity has all too often allied itself with the establishment. Um, and he, he really wants to call that relationship in question, but he also wants to demonstrate to the anarchists that there's a higher and better form of anarchy. And I think Clark, you just alluded to it. So what is it? Well, it's not... It's not throwing uh, Molotov cocktails at the police. You know, it's not bombing people like the Unabomber. And again, he explicitly opposes this in anarchy and Christianity. And what he says is, is that essentially, and and I do think this is a bit of a weakness of the text as well, because he doesn't really expand on it. But he says that, you know, essentially anarchy would be a kind of return to, I guess you might say grassroots institutions, right? That there there has to be this struggle to not let politics to not let politics um, co-opt everything that we do, and and animate every action and comment that we have. I mean, again, so again, just go go on to, if you if you think he's exaggerating, go on to Twitter and and click on a story about Taylor Swift, and you will see exactly what he's talking about, right? Because it'll be, uh, you know, it'll be this person on the right arguing as this person on the left, and so on and so forth. And so, what a little, I think a little, basically thinks that we're all being kind of drawn into. Uh, this mindset and this discourse that can only be opposed by getting outside of the abstractions of, uh, of, of political discourse and technology and living out in the real world, engaging with people like the guy that's across the street from you right now, or, you know, your neighbor, if you would to put it in kind of a Christian context. And this might involve local institutions, it might involve local groups, farmers groups, grow your own food. I mean, he's a big proponent of living locally. You might see a kind of, a lot of people might know Wendell Berry, uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the writer from Kentucky who's made a big sort of push to advocate for local living. I think Alul can be sort of safely put in that category. I think, you wow. know, other people that he's reminiscent of might be somebody like Stanley Hauerwass and his advocacy for, for pacifism and Christianity. So I think that's ultimately what Alul is advocating for. He's not advocating for, again, riots in the street you know he's he's pushing for something more subtle more concrete and more you know humane <laughs> i think i yeah, think so that. like
1: so like discreet, discrete entities of ownership and community participation and effectively rule as opposed to a monolithic top-down uh what we might in other contexts call autocratic or authoritarian ways of thinking about even society and and again when I say authoritarian I don't mean necessarily government but even these other kind of disciplining discourses like capitalism like um uh you know uh, like any political ideology is that is that a fair yeah assessment? yeah okay. I, I think that's exactly what he's going for and again
0: I, I can't underline this enough I mean he thinks both as we understand in our current kind of political discourse he thinks that both left and right are guilty of the same thing here. And right. I think this is right. Sure. I actually wrote a piece about a little on my Substack recently. And I had, a, I had a little bit of pushback on it precisely from people who thought that this equation of left and right was unfair. Normally these uh, uh, criticisms came from the left, um, but but nevertheless, like I think it's important for a lull and, and I suppose we can debate the merits of that later. But I think from a from little standpoint, any entity that, that is sort of op, that is sort of arguing for a authoritarian, bureaucratic, technologically driven, uh, profit driven, you know, uh, analytically driven entity such as the modern state is going to end up opposing this kind of concrete communal based local living that he's sort of advocating. Now, yeah. I will say this, though there's still a huge question here. And I think this is the back end of the book and I need to, I need to touch on this before I start wrapping up, but the back end of the book is where Alul gets into like, well, okay, what does the Bible have to say about this? <laughs> right. Cause I mean, he still hasn't really proven that Christians should sort of fall in to line here. And, you know, he, he does a, a number of kind of vignettes, really uh, sort of hermeneutical vignettes about different passages in scripture. So initially he starts with the Hebrew Bible in and in a way that reminds me a lot of John Howard Yoder He talks about how that's uh, Yoder's book, The Politics of Jesus, which uh, came out, I think, in the early 70s. But but he basically uh, will argues here that, you know, the Hebrew Bible is in a lot of ways an anarchistic text because it especially in the early going. I mean, once once you get the kind of Davidic line and some of the major kind of uh, rulers of the Hebrew Bible, you start getting into something more analogous to a state system. But that's exactly what's at issue right in the Hebrew Bible. Early on in the Hebrew Bible, when the judges are, are as it were, in, in charge, there's a more communal sense of we're all in this together under the under the headship of Yahweh. I mean, you see this as well uh, in, in in the Book of Exodus and so on. Um, so for for a little the the anarchism that's latent in Christianity starts there. It starts in the Old Testament, um, as Christians call that that group of texts. Then he shifts to the person of Jesus, right, and he says that. Jesus has challenged political authority all the way down. And he gives all kinds of examples of this. And I mean, I think it would almost be a waste of time to sort of go through it, but whether it's uh, Jesus overturning, uh, you know, the temple, uh, you know, tax money changers and so on, or if it's, uh, you know, the temptations that the devil presents Jesus with, right. The, the temptations are to make men uh, worship him and adore him to, to, to use miracles, to increase his power. Jesus, thoroughly, uh, and by the way, miracles might be, you know, big speeches, propagandistic, uh, you know, communication and so on. Uh, Jesus rejects all of this, right? So I think there's a strong push here in Alul's reading of Jesus to draw both on Kierkegaard, who had made the imitation of Christ so central to his thinking, but then also Fyodor Dostoevsky's reading of the temptations of Christ in the Brothers Karamazov, I think, factors in pretty heavily here as well. Uh, And then Alul jumps into some other New Testament writings uh, he looks at the Book of Revelation. Well, well,
1: before you, before you move on too much, can, sure. if, can I just interject? I could actually imagine a very um, Elulian—that's <laughs> fun to say—an yeah. Elulian reading of Jesus, in which um, the, the very scandal of Jesus, it seems, um, and I'm in, imparting a little bit of, of Rene Girard here as well. That mm, the very the, no the, sc- the very scandal of Jesus is that he doesn't basically reach the level of the romans and go over against them as his followers wanted him to do in a davidic sense but rather that he remains uh, pretty unremittingly local that is and he doesn't take on the system of empire and try to bring it down and this is exactly why peter's wrong and and why uh to some extent perhaps even judas is wrong you know that these but the failure of people to understand Jesus is his refusal to be brought into these larger, to basically be absorbed into the system of anti Rome. But I mean, again, I'm, I'd be, you know, maybe that's not, he doesn't say anything about this. But I can imagine before you move on that Jesus, you could do a lot with the ministry of Jesus as, um, or understanding it in the terms that he provides.
0: No, no, I, I think that the harder, the harder task for a lull for anybody like this, I mean, again, I mean, if you go, if you go to some of these, you know, I guess radical Jesus movements of the 60s or 70s, I mean, you see some of this, I mean, it's not too hard to derive a kind of ethos of, uh, of uh, you know, I guess, nonviolence and, and, you know, resistance to, you know, material bourgeois culture from, from the example of Jesus, that, that's not so hard to do. What's harder is to then take the writings of the New Testament, such as, uh, let's say, St. Paul's passages in Romans. And I saw our old friend Michael Jensen has a book coming out on Romans, uh, I, I think, uh, this coming year. And I, and I do think that I don't know for sure what he's going to argue, but he has, I suspect he'll argue for a certain kind of state authority or something grounded in the teachings of St. Paul. Um, and, you know, this is where a little kind of says, look, these passages where Paul says things like be subject to the higher authorities, are usually taken out of context. I mean, this is one of his uh, kind of points of emphasis. He also argues that if you look at Paul, there's a, there's a larger emphasis in his writings on nonconformity and, and that it's the nonconformist aspect of Paul that's often forgotten. And there are, people are so quick to sort of say, oh, Paul said we should you know, do whatever the authorities say, then they miss the larger emphasis in other Pauline texts on refusing to kind of conform to the world but that the emphasis from from Paul's perspective is on transforming the world. You can't transform the world when it's caught up in hegemony, right? So, uh, and interestingly enough, Alul says, you know, he actually sees himself as kind of at least expounding on positions taken by somebody like Karl Barth, who is this kind of, you know, major figure, kind of, you might say kind of mainstream Protestant theologian. So, um, so I think this is, you know, at the end of the day, and if you don't mind, I'm going to anticipate your next question, which would be something like, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the book? I mean, I think in a way I'm already kind of there because, I mean, the strength of the book is that these are really interesting questions, right? And I, I, if, if, you know, we've definitely had a pretty lengthy discussion today and I don't know if everybody's going to get to the end here, but I suspect if you do, you probably have a lot of opinions about this because we're all, we're all caught up in this election hysteria. The last, you know, uh, let's say eight to 10 years have been incredibly fractious in American culture. People are kind of politically uh, on edge. And I think you can see that bleeding into the churches. I mean, I've spoken before, I know to you personally, Clark, but to others about the churches closing down in Philadelphia during the pandemic and the kind of angst that that created uh, in Catholic circles. I mean, church and politics are very much, you know, despite the separation of church and state, I mean, these are really hot button questions. So, I mean, to me, Alull raises a proposal here that has to be taken seriously. I mean, I think his biblical exposition is clear enough. His sociological critiques of the state are reasonable enough that I think you have to kind of take him seriously. Now, you know, as for the weaknesses, I clearly, once again, here, I mean you and I keep now, this is you know, really four books in a row, two between both of us, that are pretty short. And I think from an academic standpoint, one might sort of say, well, okay. So Alul does do some biblical hermeneutics and anarchy and Christianity, but he's really not a biblical scholar per se. He probably would even push back a little bit at the very notion that biblical scholars should have pride of place in these discussions. But still, he doesn't engage a ton of scholarship. Um, his 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 readings of the Bible are—you kind of get the feeling they're his readings, right? Yes, he he's, he he quotes a few people here and there, but for the most part, there's a kind of subjective slant to this. And then at times he does some like really remarkable things. Like there's really one great passage early in the text where he says that he sees anarchy as binding together a number of very prominent Christian figures. And he starts listing them and they're they're sort of from all over the Christian map. Right. So he picks uh, Tertullian, the early church father then he picks Francis of Assisi, you know, who's one of the major saints of the Catholic Church. Then he picks Fraud uh, Fra Dolcino, who was a kind of Franciscan rebel who was ultimately, uh, I think, uh, martyred, or, or actually I wouldn't say technically martyred, right? He was actually uh, executed, right, by, by uh, the Catholic Church. I forgot the exact years of that, but he was sort of somebody that took a kind of radical Franciscanism and pushed back against the Catholic hierarchy. Uh, Alul also talks about John Wycliffe, and then he talks about Charles de Foucault, who is this really fascinating uh, Catholic priest from the, uh, the early 20th century who lived alone in the desert so that he could um, uh, carry out an authentic Christian ministry as he saw it. Um, and so, you know, a little groups, all of these people together, some of them are Protestant. Uh, see, so, you know, at times, you know, some of them are Catholics who are kind of in an open rebellion against the church. Some of them are Catholics who are considered Catholics of, of not only good standing, but are canonized saints. So how do you, how do you put all of these different figures in the same bucket and not distinguish between their different positions? Well, he doesn't do it. <laughs> so, no, but, you guys, but this is a late book. It comes out in 1988. A yeah. little dies in 1994. I mean, maybe he was just like, "I'm good. I don't have to. I don't have to apologize to you, man. I'm not going to go through all this stuff. I mean, People can do their own work themselves." But uh, at the end of the day, there there's certainly a lot of I- anybody that takes this book seriously will have more questions, not less. Let's put it that way.
1: That's right. I, and I think there's a certain value to to not necessarily being wedded to the necessary academic content of justifying yourself as you as you intimated um in terms of necessarily biblical scholarship or alternatively if you're a biblical scholar uh deeply engaged in the text to theologians uh, i mean, right. I think there's this there, there's this hyper specialization that that in the name of expertise can can tend to crowd out the things like uh, as you're describing the question that is more important than any of that which is how, what is what does something like faithfulness look like? And, you know, if it's embedded in these, in these questions, then I think it's pretty important, right. um, you know? Okay. Well, um, I, I would ask: do, Does the book still matter? I think we've, I think you've hit that in spades. Or, or yeah. would, are you okay if we move on from that? Okay.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm okay. I mean, the only thing I would just add to that again is, that I, you know, I, I think he does because I have talked about this, this book or in, in Alul's work with, with friends, you know, people that I get along with. They don't these, these discussions don't end in fistfights or anything. But uh, I will say, he's, the, the, you have when you think about the current debates so or whether it's. Should Trump be the Republican nominee or should Biden retire? And, you know, who should take his place? And, you know, what, what should be the U.S.'s standing over against, let's say, the Russia-Ukrainian uh, conflict and so on and so forth, or issues in Israel and Hamas? Like, all of those debates are the things that we're going to see on Twitter, we're going to see in the news and all the time. And Alul wants to cut an alternative path, I think. And so when you when you discuss his opinions they don't they don't slot in easily with any particular mm-hmm. sort of uh, extant standpoint in in our media today and I think that's exactly why I think he should be read personally I mean I think you know and I, and I think the other side of it too is that his emphasis on like kind of organic concrete relationships being local living local it might be the last line of defense against all of us being sort of brought into these sort of abstract groupings where we're just like well I'm this and you're that and we're against each other and I've, I've had so many people say to me, like, well, during the whole Trump presidency, like I couldn't go I couldn't have Thanksgiving dinner at my, with my family anymore. I think Oul would just do a face palm, you know what I mean like you know like like that's just you know because your family is that's that those are, those are your people, you know like you can't let these abstract differences interrupt your 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 bonding with people in your neighborhood and in your family and in your church or wherever. And so again, I think it's a welcome antidote to these abstractions that we're so used to throwing around today so okay hit me with the category well well,
1: well bef- yeah <laughs> sorry one more thing i i, I, I do <laughs> I, I do think it was it was hilarious i was driving with my son as as i as i told you earlier from a basketball game and i was listening to a podcast on the the on gen z and the gender wars in which case um Basically, young women in Gen Z are skewing hard, hard left and men are skewing hard right. Um, and, and there's all sorts of nuance that's required there. But I was listening to this podcast and, and my son turned to me and he was like, Dad, are you a feminist? <laughs> and I was like, well, buddy, what, what do you mean by that? And, and why do you think that? And he's like, well, you're listening to a podcast on basically that ha- at least it was addressing feminism uh, in the 21st century by, a, an espoused, uh, I mean, a, a self-avowed feminist. And I thought it was such an interesting move to directly to your point that like the, by virtue of me listening to a podcast in which they're, they're discussing, why is this happening? What, what does the research actually suggest that, that the natural question was, dad, are you this and right. the neatness yeah. and the ease with which we get thrown into these, these categories. Okay. Um, Oh, I'm so curious how you're going to answer this. Would you recommend this book to your best friend from middle school, a random person at a ballpark, have fun, uh, or your least favorite colleague at work?
0: Hmm. It depends on the ballpark. Like, I think uh, you know. <laughs> I think you know, maybe there are there may be certain ballparks where I could get away with this, but I the the ones I used to be at in South Jersey with my kids, I'd probably leave with like a black eye or something. So, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's. It is the kind of book that I, and I, I say that teasingly, but I mean, I think it's the kind of book where, you know, it's short, it's provocative. It's easy to read. So I say, yes, I would tell anybody to read this book. Cause I, I think anybody can understand it. It's not, you don't, you don't need sort of a, a huge background in religion or theology or the Bible. I mean, he explains things carefully enough. Um, the translation is good, right? I mean, it's translated from French, but I mean, it's a, it's pretty straightforward. So I say, yes, I recommend it to anybody, but again, I would just say be, be, be warned. Because if you if you then in turn bring it up at like I don't know with you know a buddy some sometime that buddy might not understand what you th- what you mean when you say I really like this book because you know it might it might uh, it might ruffle some feathers because it it sort of tries to operate. Outside of the current paradigm that we all view our world through, right? And I think that's one of the challenges of it. So, so uh, caveat emptor, I guess you might say. I,
1: I would love just let me know in advance when you're at <laughs> one of these baseball events and you decide to carry on a couple of pocket copies of you know anarchy and Christian, and, and you start handing it out and being like, "Hi, I'm Chris. I'm a I'm a Christian anarchist." I just want to see what that looks like um, and see how many perhaps not even fights you get into, but how many, how quickly people are like, Oh no, here it comes. But you, th- you know, it's
0: funny. Here. And again, I, I'd hate to keep adding to this, but you know, it's funny though. And, and I, and I, th- I say this with with much gratitude. I mean, I've, I've had with my novel man of pain, that's uh, doing pretty well. I'm, I'm pretty excited with the reception it's gotten. And I've, and a lot of the people that have read that book are not, I, I don't know how many, I know you, I appreciate you reading a Clark, but I mean, I know, I don't know how many academics have read it or very many have, but I have had, actually, I was at a, we were at a baseball get together the other night. And, you know, one of the, one of the, the dads said to me, Hey, I, I love your novel. And I was like, wow. And then like, there are other people who have done that. And this novel actually, for what it's worth, does kind of deal with some of these issues, albeit in fictionalized and kind of comedic form. Um, but uh, I do think that people kind of, kind of to your point earlier about the Telica book, I think you, we might be surprised there might be more people at the ball field that are like, yeah, you know what? freaking CNN and Fox suck. <laughs> and and but, but if you say that like in a faculty meeting, you know, people might look at you like, what is, what's up with this guy? Is he like a Trumper or what? You said CNN sucks yeah. But I do think, uh, I do think that there are people, you, there's a kind of common sense that I think a little speaking to, like don't don't yeah. get caught up in these abstractions. Just talk to the guy that comes to your door, right? Or what yeah. have you, you know? So actually, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to push back on you on that one, Clark, just a little bit
1: okay well like i said (laughs) just let me know man just let me know all right all right if you were to adapt this book to a screen uh or to the screen what would be the genre so it's got to be
0: historical fiction because of all these different historical figures that he's he's alluded to Uh, i mean i don't know maybe you you can imagine something like the ten commandments or 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 i was Mm -hmm. actually thinking of uh, more more uh uh, initially i was thinking of the mission the 1986 film directed by roland Mm. jaffe right the mission actually does deal with some of this stuff right because yeah. the mission that's set up outside of spanish control ends up being you know and it's really it's really set up for for the benefit of the the, the native yeah. um, guarani who lived there but then when the spanish sort of acquired that territory they're like nope you're brought into the state system now right and the yeah. church is sort of looking around like well what do we do you know and then you have these jesuit priests who are opposed to the institutional church hierarchy which is sort of like well we got to go along with the spanish uh ruling here uh and so i think the mission is a good example of this kind of thinking mm-hmm. personally if i was to try to transform this into some kind of uh, these ideas i think i was i was thinking like a a screenplay about charles de foucault is would be very timely and who mm-hmm. knows yeah i might even start doing that myself all right so uh, that, that that's my <laughs> answer to that question
1: all right uh, all right if you're creating a spotify playlist to accompany the reading of this book where do you start
0: Man, this one was fun, and I I, I could go on and on. But I'm just gonna give three. So first of all, I'm gonna do Bob Dylan every time, okay? So so Bob oh Dylan got to okay. serve somebody, okay? That's a great song. Got to serve somebody. Look it up on Spotify. Um, it, it's it's as part of uh, this is like the the lead single from Dylan's sort of Christian period, and it's really good. I got to go next with the Rolling Stones "Give Me Shelter" 1969. Mm. Um, that that's a classic. Obviously a favorite of Martin Scorsese, but it's also uh, it's also a song about war and conflict and the need to turn to love. And then finally, the, my wild card, because I was like, I'm really sounding like a classic rock guru here. I need to I need to do something else. So I, I came up with Kendrick Lamar's Nine 95 which was his kind of satirical. Kendrick Lamar is a hip hop artist, rapper, if you will. Uh, and he had this very kind of satirical take on uh, the, the sort of COVID pandemic and the, the, the sort of superficiality of kind of, uh, I guess you might say social media. And so I, I just, I found that song to be really um, uh, thought provoking in a lot of ways. And uh, it, it's uh, it's, it's also pretty catchy. So uh, we'll go with those three.
1: I can't believe you didn't say rage against the machine bulls. On that's trade. a good one. That's I mean, a good I think one. That seems the quintessential Christian. Uh, no, nah, let me rephrase. <laughs> um, that's a quintessential anarchist um, uh, song. It seems to me. Okay. All right. Um, okay. Well, uh, man, I, I'm so curious uh, to see what we're going to say on round two when we do another uh, text on Elul, uh, the political illusion, because you, <laughs> right, you, you right, kind of right. whetted my appetite for this. Um, do we need to have any final thoughts? Anything you'd like to add? Uh, before I don't we close think up? so.
0: Given how long we've talked today, I don't think we do. I mean, uh, there, there are so <laughs> right. many. And, and it's, a, it's a short book, too. So, I mean, I, again, there's it's not like there's one passage out of a 600-page work where it's like, oh, well, these these four lines, like... It's like Charles Taylor's secular age where you're like, you, got, you better find some passages to quote because the whole thing itself is unwieldy. This is a very digestible book, so I don't need to throw out any uh, particular passages. I'll just say take a, take, take a look at it, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll come back
1: to it well, again, I have no doubt. Awesome. Okay, yeah, well then right. tell me this. What are you talking about next week? Gosh, I don't even know if I remember. I, I think it might be. I think it's Bart, right? Natural is it natural theology? Yeah, Bart? it could. It could be that, or it could be Julian
0: of Norwich. I need. I need to go back and check my list, but it, it's sort of in that in that vein. So, uh, those are like wildly opposed alternatives. I
1: guess. But... <laughs> well, I was going to say, I, th- I think it's Bart, <laughs> and it, let, let, for the sake of argument, let me just say, uh, if if. If you're listening to this, I mean, if these are a little idiosyncratic, I think both Telica in, in obviously different ways, Telica and a little R, um, not not necessarily what we might consider mainstream theology. If indeed Chris is doing natural uh, natural theology by Bart next week, I'm doing um, on religion speeches to culture despisers by Friedrich Schleiermacher, which is a kick. Uh, I mean, a shot way back. Um, mm to the 18th century. Um, Bart is 20th century, but it's, I would consider these to be borderline classics of theology. Uh, Yeah, I think that's a good point. Well, uh, you just sold me.
0: You just sold me. I'm going to do, I'm going to do Bart and Bruner's natural theology next week. And I'll give, I'll give, I'll come back to Julian of Norwich later. So you got a deal. Um, Look, great talking today. It was really good. And uh, I will be in touch soon. Hopefully the basketball games go well this weekend.
1: Uh, One can hope. (laughs) One can hope.
0: All right, man. See you later. Bye. (music) you <music>